So now, would you look with me in your Bible to Luke 22? Luke 22. And as I'm looking out today, I see some new faces, and so I recognize that um, you might need a bit of an on-ramp, because our passage this morning brings us to something of a climax, uh, like a, a summation of, of what we've been talking about over the last three weeks. So if you've missed that, uh, that's okay. Let me just, let me give you a real quick on-ramp. So a few weeks ago, we saw the institution of the Lord's Supper. Jesus sat down and shared the Passover meal with his disciples, and at that supper, at the end of the supper, he said, someone whose hands are on the table right now is going to betray me. And he just left that hanging. And so then he moved, so let me fix this. So he left that hanging, then and then he moved on. But that, that little thread right there, it was dangling. Well, today we're going to pick up that thread. We're going to see it in our story. But Jesus went on and he talked about how a season of trial and tribulation and temptation was coming for his disciples. And, and so that thread, this idea that a, an hour of darkness, an hour of challenge, that's going to be picked up in our passage this morning. We're going to see that really coming to a climax. But in particular, he looked at Peter, Simon Peter. And he said to him, Satan has requested to sift you. Meaning, Satan, in particular, you Peter, then this is alarming. Satan Satan is pointing at you and he says, I'm going to test and tempt him. And we were reminded in that passage that the devil has no authority except that which God gives to him. So the devil is fierce, but as Pastor Paul would often say, he's like a dog on a chain. And, and God is the one who decides how long or how short his chain is. But we were reminded in that passage that there are seasons when God lengthens that chain. According to his own purposes, he lengthens that chain, and we endure seasons of trial and temptation. So that thread is going to be picked up here in this story. He told them to prepare. He tells us to prepare. And how do we prepare for such seasons? Jesus said, pray that you may not enter into temptation. So he said there's a A time of betrayal, a time of trial and temptation. It's coming. How do you prepare for this? You pray. And the disciples then went to sleep as Jesus prayed. Right, so that's where we are in the story. And what we find now is that this this day of darkness is about to descend on the disciples. And we'll discover how they fare in this season that Jesus had anticipated. So look with me now to Luke chapter 22 as we've brought ourselves up to speed. So remember, Jesus has just been praying in the garden, sweat drops of blood. He has been praying. And the text picks up here in verse 47. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, active word to us today. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and they led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, 
looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I don't know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I'm not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Jesus has been preparing his disciples for this moment, and now the test is upon them. So in verse 53, if you look back there with me, as Jesus speaks to the, those who have come to oppose him in the garden, he says, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Now he's speaking to the soldiers who are about to arrest him, but he's speaking past the soldiers to the demonic forces who are animating this whole scene. Jesus is saying here that that, that chain that we talked about, it's being lengthened. That, that that hour of trial and temptation has begun. And in the very first second of this trial, Luke wants us to see that the disciples failed the test. Immediately. Immediately they, they clamor for their swords. They say, Jesus, is now the time. And one of them doesn't wait for an answer. Peter, we, in John's gospel, we read that the one is actually Peter himself. Peter yanks out his sword, swings at someone's head. Graciously he misses, but he lops off the man's ear. And Jesus says, no more of this. He touched his ear and he healed him. The disciples still didn't get it. We've discussed this at length over the last few weeks, and so I won't belabor the point, but suffice it to summarize, the disciples were still trusting and trying to wield the weapons of the world to fight their spiritual battle. They were still trying to to engage in this spiritual fight with their own physical strength. They didn't get it. And and our brother Gary pulled this out so helpfully a few weeks ago, and, and he's right. We often fall into the same trap. Gary confessed that he falls into the same trap. I will confess this morning, I fall into the same trap. We so often try to, to do these things, to fight in these spiritual fights in our strength. And before we turn to him, we look inward and we turn to ourselves. Trials and temptations reveal what we're trusting in. They have a way of exposing us. So when the going gets tough, when the temperature rises, that's when we find out who we really are and what we really believe. So John Calvin notes, even the holiest of men or women, however well aware that they stand not in their own strength, but by the grace of God, would feel too secure in their own fortitude and constancy were they not brought to a more thorough knowledge of themselves by the trial of the cross. Calvin's saying, even the strongest, even the holiest people, the holiest folks in this congregation, those who are furthest along in their walk with the Lord, even still, they would fall into the trap of, of thinking that they can do this in their own strength. Were it not for the trials and temptations in our lives that, that knock us down and expose what's really there. See, Peter was a courageous man. Nobody can deny that. He was. And Peter truly loved Jesus. In fact, Peter was a man who had made great sacrifices for Jesus. 
That was, his, that was his past. That was his story up to this moment. But as Peter was confronted now with the true cost of discipleship, as he was confronted with this very real trial and test and temptation, he came to a more thorough knowledge of himself, a knowledge that he needed. And my prayer is that as we worship our way through this passage, we too would obtain a more thorough knowledge of ourselves. And as I was praying this morning in preparation for this sermon, you know, this, God's word never returns void. It's going to speak to each one of us. But I, I'm thinking in particular of those in this room who just feel like a failure. God has a word for you today. So as we walk through this passage, very simply, we're going to break it into two parts. We're going to find a warning and we're going to find a comfort. So let, let's first consider the warning. And we find this warning in the two, you could say, main characters of this story. If you notice, when, when you read through the passage, it's, Jesus is there, but it's almost like Jesus takes a step into the background. Now, he does some foregroundy things. He picks an ear up and puts it back on someone's head. He deserves to be the main character of this story. And yet, and yet Jesus steps back, and these two disciples really become uh, the center of the scene. Judas and Simon Peter. And we learn a lesson from both of these men. Both of them serve as warnings for us. So first, let's consider Judas. And as we look to him, we learn this. Trials and temptations expose wickedness. So, so when those seasons come, one of the things that they expose is, is a wicked heart. I fear we've grown so familiar with this story that the treachery of Judas is almost lost on us. This is meant to be shocking. And yet, you know, I just read through this passage. Nobody in the room went, what? No, nobody did, because we, we know what Judas will do. We know that he will betray Jesus. We know the plot twist, right? Judas is the villain. But let's remember, the disciples did not know the plot twist. The disciples would have been dumbfounded by this. They would have been heartbroken when they saw Judas coming into this. They're praying in the garden. This is a place where they often prayed, the text says. So just imagine, this is like the sweet spot where Jesus breaks away with the disciples and they have these sweet times of prayer. And in walks Judas into their prayer meeting. But Judas is followed by a company of soldiers. And they just, the disciples just broke bread with this brother. They just watched, Jesus washed Judas's feet just a few minutes ago. Judas was there with them when Jesus was walking on the water. Judas was there with them when Jesus calmed the storm. Judas was there with them when Jesus called to Lazarus and and he came out of the tomb and a dead man lived. Judas saw all of that. The disciples trusted Judas. I mean, like they really trusted Judas. They put him in charge of the money. Did you know that? He was the one who was in charge of the money. You don't put someone in charge of the money if you don't trust them. They did. They trusted him. They loved this brother. But with guards in tow, this this brother walked straight into their secret place of prayer. And he walked straight to Jesus. And he betrayed him with a kiss. Now, a kiss, we don't greet each other this way. I joked about that earlier, but... In those days, this was the warm, customary greeting. You know, the Apostle Paul elsewhere wrote, greet one another with a holy kiss. This was like a warm embrace, a symbol of love and affection. But Judas used this greeting to put a target on Jesus. He's taking these guards, and the guards can't discern which one is Jesus and which one isn't. And so Judas gave him a kiss as if to put a a target right on him. Like, this is the one. Take him. And for 30 pieces of silver, this act of treachery was put into place. And what happened? 
Well, the trial and the temptation exposed reality. And the reality was that Judas was never truly in. You know, if I could just, as an aside, right now, with, you know, with YouTube and all these things, there are all of these deconversion, deconstruction stories. You know, you've, you've likely heard them, or maybe just in your personal life. You hear these stories of those who, who walk away from the faith and, and mock the faith and scoff at the faith. And, and, you know, they talk about, well, this happened or this happened, and it really just the whole thing crumbled. And the reality is, is it's just not, it's not like that. It wasn't that Judas had some experience and then suddenly he decided, I think I'm going to turn away. No, it's that Judas had this experience and it exposed reality. And the reality is that Judas was never in. He was seeing, but he never saw. He was hearing, but he never heard. He was physically present with the disciples, but spiritually he was elsewhere. He looked like a lamb, but he was a wolf. Now, when we read through the New Testament, we never get a clear explanation of why Judas did what he did. But we do find some clues. So for example, in John 12, 6, we're told that Judas was the one who watched over the money. And we're told that he had a habit of stealing money from the money bag. In fact, at one time when uh, the woman was worshiping Jesus and she broke the flask, remember Judas was the one who was angry that she had done this thing. In her extravagant worship, she had wasted this expensive perfume. And Judas says, we could have sold that. We could have given it to the poor. But the text says, actually, he wanted... He just wanted to put the money in the bag because that's where he gets his income. Meaning what? Meaning Judas was a man who was all about advancement. He was a man who was all about taking a step up in the world, moving forward, greatness. And uh, I've often marveled that on the same night when Jesus washed Judas' feet, he betrayed him. You've probably heard that said. I've said it. Like, what, you know, what a shock that he would be willing to do that. But the more I think about Judas and what we see of him in the text, part of me wonders if that wasn't one of the motivating factors that really pushed him out. Judas wanted greatness. And with each passing day, it was becoming clearer and clearer that the kind of greatness that Jesus was teaching is not the greatness that Judas wanted. I'm not a foot washer. This is not what I signed up for. This isn't what, I'm, what I followed you for. In fact, I've heard it argued that this betrayal in the garden was actually an attempt by Judas to force Jesus' hand, to try and get Jesus into the, into the real game plan here. You know, let's, let's, let's get Jesus to call down a legion of angels. Let's overthrow the Romans. Let's, because Jesus seems to be dilly-dallying, so let's push him into it. It would seem that Judas didn't expect that Jesus would actually go through with it and be crucified. Because after the crucifixion, Judas is shocked. He calls his 30 pieces of silver blood money. He hangs himself. Because Judas didn't want to kill Jesus, it seems he wanted to conform Jesus. He thought Jesus was the ticket to power, to prestige, to control. So he was following Jesus, but he was following a Jesus of his own imagination. And day by day, he was coming to realize that the Jesus of his imagination is very different than this man. Let's make sure we learn this lesson. We don't conform Jesus to our image. He conforms us. So let me ask you a question. As we consider the example of Judas, and it's so easy for us to remove ourselves from him entirely, but just a real, a real simple example. When you are confronted by his word, because that that's what was happening in Judas' life. He had an idea of Jesus but Jesus kept saying things that were so opposite to the direction that he wanted to run in. 
and eventually he just cut ties all together. When you and I, when we, when we open the word of God and we are confronted with things that seem so contrary to the direction that we want to run in, do you change or do you try to make him change? When it confronts the areas of your life that need to be confronted, like, like your money or your sexuality or your pride, your freedom, your submission, your worship, your marriage, your grudges, your ambitions, forgiveness. When you read his word and he says something to you that feels so backwards from the direction that you want to run in, who wins the fight? What we're reminded of here as we look at Judas is that proximity to Jesus, being near Jesus, does not necessarily equal saving faith. Sitting in the sanctuary on a Sunday morning, or even sitting with your Bible on your lap on a Tuesday morning, does not necessarily equal saving faith. Being born into a Christian family does not necessarily equal saving faith. If, if saving faith is there, you will see obedience. You will see submission. Jesus said, why do you say you love me and yet not do the things I command you? And so Judas is walking around and he's saying he loves Jesus, but he's not, he's not following Jesus. Jesus is not his Lord. And the New Testament consistently teaches us that there will always be wolves in the church dressed up as sheep. There are going to be many who do many mighty works in Jesus' name, but they actually don't know him at all. They call themselves followers of Jesus, but the Jesus that they follow is not the Jesus of the Bible. And more often than not, he's simply a dressed-up version of themselves and their culture. And if that's you, and if, if right now the Holy Spirit's poking you and saying, this is you, then you need to know that you are in a dangerous position. You're following in the footsteps of Judas. And when trials and temptations come, and they will come, they will expose what's there. They'll expose that wickedness. Because that's what idolatry is. That's what making Jesus into our image is. It's idolatry. It's wicked. And trials and temptations expose it. That's the warning we see in Judas. It's the first warning. But there's a second warning in this passage too. Let's turn our attention now to Peter where we learn that trials and temptations, they don't just expose wickedness, but they also expose weakness. And that's another thing entirely. Now, weak was not an adjective that anyone would have used to describe Peter before this. Peter was a lot of things. Peter was brash, yes. Peter was hard-headed at times. Peter was courageous, absolutely. One commentator observes, and I, I think this is exactly right, he, he asks, he says, if your first reaction in a scrape is to cut a man's ear off, chances are you've done that before. Which I thought, true, you never think of that. The other disciples were like, well, I don't know, Jesus, this time Peter's already swinging. Like, he's done this before. He's a strong man, a forceful man. So they called him the rock. It's easy to understand why he could say with such great confidence when Jesus says, you guys are going to turn away from me. Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. You know, I... I've met some people in my life and I wonder if Peter, you know, just, you know those people whose inclination is just courage and confidence? It's like the, the person who's almost always the strongest guy in the room, the smartest guy in the room. This is Peter. Lord, I'm ready. I don't know about these guys, but I'm ready to go with you. To prison, to death, bring it on. He believed it. 
Right? This is from his heart. He was sure of it. But the trial and the temptation revealed there was actually a weakness in Peter that he didn't yet see. So Jesus is led away after Peter's attempt. Jesus is led away. And the text says that Peter followed him, but at a distance. And to his credit, let's notice, Peter is the only one who follows Jesus of the disciples that we know of. He's the only one who follows, and yet he's following at a distance. And we're not meant to follow Jesus at a distance. We forfeit our spiritual power when we're following Jesus at a distance. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, right? We need to be near to Jesus. But he's, he's following at a distance, and he is soon exposed. So he has these three encounters. We'll just walk through them in the text. His first is with a servant girl. We see that in verse 56. The text says, Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. This is his first trial. So then he's, he's sitting there at the fire, and it says, And a little later, someone else saw him, and they said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Second trial. And then the text says he's sitting there for an interval of about an hour. So you can imagine at this point, and just to try and picture the scene, he's, he's there, they're sitting at this fire, because it's chilly, like this is the middle of the night, right? So they're all like huddled around trying to warm themselves by the fire. But they're in the courtyard. And so they, they're looking over there and they can see Jesus and this trial. And Jesus has been beaten. The text tells us later that Jesus has been beaten up by the guards who are mocking him. So you've got this beaten, battered Jesus standing there being held up by the guards. And he's there inquiring and testing him and asking him questions. And so Peter's sitting there by the fire. And a third person says, certainly this man also was with him. For he too is a Galilean. So now Jesus, or Peter's uh, accent is giving him away. And they're like, this is definitely one of them. But Peter says angrily, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And in that moment, the strongest of the apostles, the man who was known as the rock, the man who was ready to swing a sword just a few hours earlier, crumbled. Peter had faced the trial and he had failed. One commentator notes, the story of Peter's denial could not have been invented. It presents a sober and utterly real picture of the prominent apostle. Just as a brief aside, you know, one of the arguments that people make uh, about, you know, why Christianity is such a sham is they, they say that you know, it was the apostles that wrote the New Testament. Um, they made this story up once their savior was killed so that they could try to maintain a semblance of power for themselves. And, okay, I hear that as a theory. But passages like this really poke holes in that theory. Because if Peter is going to be the, the prominent man in this, this new movement, trying to hold on to power after Jesus is dead, then this is a curious story to make up for your leader. It does not present the kind of guy that you want to follow. But the Bible is honest about the disciples. It's honest about their weaknesses. And it's honest about Peter. This is an embarrassing story for him. Trials and temptations expose us. Peter thought he was strong. He needed to see that he was, in fact, weak. He thought he was brave. He needed to see that, actually, he was still afraid of man. And many of us in this room, while having faced different trials than that of Peter, have experienced similar failures. What did that look like? Well, it looked like when you laughed along at that dirty joke at work because you wanted to fit in with the team. It looked like when you put that flag on your desk 
because you didn't want to risk losing your position. It looked like when, when you didn't take that opportunity, somebody asked you a question and you thought, I could tell them about Jesus here, but then you, you didn't because you were afraid of what they were going to think about you. And those trials, they hit us on a daily basis, right? Each of us can think of a time, probably even from just this past week, when we were confronted and we had an opportunity to stand for Jesus, to be brave for Jesus, to be courageous, and, and we didn't. See, it's easy to be brave for Jesus when you're, when you're sharing the meal with him at the table. It was easy for Peter to say, I, not me, Lord. I'll stand with you. I'll even die for you. It's easy to be brave for Jesus when you're sitting in the gymnasium with all your brothers and sisters in Christ. Anybody feeling brave right now? I am. Bring it on, world. Like, what are you going to do to us? I feel pretty brave right now. Boy, it gets a lot harder when you go out there and you're sitting by the fire and you're surrounded by people who hate Jesus and you see him bruised and bleeding over top of the heads. It's hard when you're in the workplace and you're having lunch at the table and, and they're making crass jokes and you realize that your faith is so foreign to these folks. It's hard. And three times, Peter failed this test. Following the third failure, we read, and immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and he looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Now, I told you that this passage has a warning and a comfort. That's the end of our passage, and perhaps you're wondering, I don't see the comfort. Um, fair enough. Let's try and see it. As we've said over the last few weeks, these, these stories, it's very helpful just to try and picture these in your mind. So we already tried to bring ourselves into that scene so you can imagine that he's sitting at the fire, they're warming themselves. Jesus is over there, bruised and beaten, and he's doing his trial. And, and Peter's frightened. And so just think about that last moment. He gets asked that last question. He says, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And the rooster crows and Peter lifts his eyes. And in that moment, even though Jesus is over here in the midst of his trial, Jesus looks away from his inquisitor and he locks eyes with Peter. What was in that look? I would imagine each of us, as we read the text, we're picturing that scene a little bit differently. What is in that look? As Jesus looks at this man, this, this man who thought he was so strong, so confident, so brave, and here, you know, right after his nap in the garden, when he couldn't even stay awake in prayer, here he's betrayed him. What is, what's in the look? Admittedly, I don't know. I can't, the, the Bible doesn't say, we're going to have to wait till we see Peter in heaven to find out what was in that look. But I've got some clues. I'm reminded that just a few verses earlier, when right after Peter had been talking about how brave he was, Jesus said to him, I've prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Meaning what? Meaning Jesus knew that Peter would fail. So, so Jesus, as he's looking at him, one thing he's not one thing that's not in the look, there's no surprise in the look. Jesus isn't like, oh, great. After all of my investment into this loser. We're laughing, but sometimes don't we think that he thinks that about us? After all of my investment in this loser, can't, he, can't even hold the fort in one conversation with a little girl at the fire. But that's not what's in the look. Because Jesus is not surprised because Jesus knew. So he looks at him, he's not, it's not that. 
It's not, would it, is, it, is it wrath? Is it anger? It doesn't seem that way because Jesus has got a plan to restore him. What's in the look? I think it's mercy. I think it's compassion. It's a look that simultaneously breaks Peter, and it breaks him. Right? The text says Peter, Peter then, he flees. At this point, he's not following Jesus at a distance now. Now he's fleeing the scene, and he is weeping because he sees his weakness. It's a look that simultaneously breaks Peter and builds him back up. In my study this week, I was really helped by um, a commentary I found. I actually didn't even know I had this commentary. It was in Ron's office. Uh, he's got some books there. You're welcome to take any of those books in that office. or They're giveaways. And uh, just, I just happened to be browsing around the room, and I found this old, tattered book. And I'm like trying to figure out like, what it says on the cover. It's a commentary on Luke by G. Campbell Morgan. I love G. Campbell Morgan. I've been using him for acts. I told you who he is, but let me remind you. He was the pastor of um, Westminster Chapel in London. He was the pastor who was there before Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's one of the greatest preachers of the 19th century. 1900, sorry. And G. Campbell Morgan, when, at the time that he wrote this commentary, he was well along in his ministry, so he was an older, seasoned pastor with wisdom. And as a younger, not-so-seasoned pastor with not so much wisdom, I really relish opportunities to read from those brothers. And I was so helped when I read this. And I think I'm writing a different sermon this week because of this little paragraph. Let me read it. There was a time in the younger years of my ministry when I should have enjoyed 15 minutes scoring Simon. But not now. I'm not exonerating him from blame. But if I investigate my own heart, I'm not surprised. Moreover, I've ceased criticizing him because there has dawned on me the fact that Jesus did not do so. He understood. He never gave him up. See, we like to take shots at Peter, don't we? And the disciples. We like to talk about these knuckleheads. You were with Jesus all that time. He's, told, he's answered this question for you five times. How are you still not seeing it? These clueless disciples, oh, you said you're going to be brave, but you're actually a coward. Oh, you swung a sword, trusting in the world's weapons in a spiritual fight. You fool. We, are so, we can be so hard on Peter. And to be fair, I think we have the same disposition towards ourselves. We're so, so hard on ourselves. So hard on him. Don't raise your hand. Are there any cowards in this room? Are there any failures in this room? Let me ask you a real pointed question. Is there anyone in this room who succumbed to that temptation that you've been fighting just this week? You went back to it. And you felt so gross. You went back to the same argument. And you've been resolved. No, we're not going to do this. We're not going to do this. And yet, boom, same argument, back in. Just, you just failed. Has the latest trial exposed that you are weak? Any weak folks in this room? Here's comfort. Jesus knows the difference between weakness and wickedness. And we need to learn to recognize the difference too. So let's consider these two examples that we have before us. Two examples of betrayal. Both of these men betrayed Jesus. And when we sin, and when we fall short, and when we turn away from him, we reject his way, we do our own thing, so too do we. And yet, as we look at Judas, and as we look at Peter, there is an alarming difference between these two men, isn't there? Look at Judas. 
Here's a man who does not love Jesus. Here's a man who does not want Jesus, at least not the Jesus, the real Jesus. He had an idea of Jesus that he wants to follow. But this Jesus that he's seeing now, he does not want him to be Lord of his life. But then here's Peter, as much a betrayer of Jesus as Judas. But he loves Jesus. He really does. He really wants to obey and follow Jesus. But he's blown it. Do you see the difference? It's important that you do. Pastor Thabiti Anuabwile says, there's a tremendous difference between wickedness and weakness. Wickedness receives condemnation. Weakness receives help and comfort. So if I could just speak candidly this morning, I, I think that there are a lot of people in the room who need this passage, who need it. As I was working through it this week and preparing, I just came to realize, I think that this is a timely word for many folks in this room. Some of you are walking around all week long feeling like you're a Judas. When you're actually a Simon. You see your failures, you see your shortcomings, you see the ways that you just keep falling short, you keep going back, you keep blowing it. And you take them as evidences that you are a hypocrite, just like Judas. But what they're actually revealing is that you're weak, just like Simon. You're still a work in progress. Can I tell you something? Welcome to the club. You are a work in progress. Now, and now I want to be very careful, so hear this qualifier. I am not excusing our sin. So this isn't... This isn't an excuse for you to say, oh, good, well, I'm going to go back to that that sin that I was struggling with this week. That's not it. Peter wept. Peter Peter was broken. He wept. So too should we. You should weep when you backslide into that addiction. You should weep when you return to that same old argument. You should weep when that pattern of thinking just goes back on repeat in your brain. Weep and repent, yes. But then get up. And by the grace of God and the power of Christ in you, move forward. See, the fact that you're weeping over your sin is a wonderful sign that yours is not the sin of Judas. Listen, we're going to strive for holiness in this place. We are. That's, that is our goal. We're going we're to deal with what's next in the text. We're going to speak openly and honestly about sin, not just from the pulpit, but in our personal lives. I'm going to see sin in your life, and I'm going to call it out and you're going to see sin in my life and you're going to call it out and we're going to as iron sharpens iron so one man and one woman's going to sharpen each other because we want to live for Jesus he's called us to be holy as he is holy and he deserves it and so we're going to live that way in this place and yet until we reach glory not a single one of us in this place is ever going to nail it we're never going to be perfect and that means that this congregation until Christ returns, is going to be perpetually filled to the brim with weak people like Simon. We are, each and every one of us, bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. That's a Bible term. Bruised reeds. You think of these little reeds growing up in the marsh, and they're already flimsy, and this one's bruised, which means it's extra flimsy. Smoldering wicks. So you just think of that candle right after you blew it out, and there's still just a little bit of, little bit of something there. It's smoking. The Bible says, that's like us. We're frail. We're needy. We feel like we're on the verge of being snuffed out half the time. I mean, how, that sounds like Wednesday, right? You just roll out of bed and it's like, I don't know if I've got the strength to get through this day. But Jesus knows how to tend to people like us. 
Matthew 12, 20. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. See, the, en- the enemy, as you see that, because listen, you should see that you're a bruised reed and a smoldering wick. It's, it's actually helpful for you to see that, how dependent you are. But what the enemy's going to do when you see that in your life is the enemy wants to use that to squash you. He wants to use that to render you useless. He wants to have you surrender in the fight to temptation. Oh, I'm just too weak. I guess I might as well just give myself over to this. He would have you wallow in self-loathing so that you're, you're not fit for, you can't minister to anyone because you're too busy hating yourself. That's the devil's game plan. He's good at it. But that would be a waste of your weakness because the Bible says that actually it's when you're weak that you're strong. Remember Jesus prayed for Peter? Remember what he prayed? I've prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, meaning when you inevitably do fail, strengthen your brothers. When you you come through this, Peter, you're going to be well equipped to strengthen the people around you. 2 Corinthians 1, um, God, God tells us that he's the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions so that we can comfort others with the comfort that we've received. And that's not just afflictions like when we were struggling with some terrible thing in our life. It's also the affliction of when we were broken by our weakness and we've been restored. He says, now you are an ambassador for Christ. You get to minister from that place to the hurting people all around you. Guess what? There's hurting people all around you. Like, look beside you and behind you and in front of you. There's hurting people all around you. Confess your weakness to Jesus. Watch him turn it into strength. Watch him build up the church with it. I love uh, the Puritan Richard Sibbs. He says, Weakness with watchfulness will stand when strength with too much confidence fails. Weakness with acknowledgement of it is the fittest seat and subject for God to perfect his strength in. For conscious of our infirmities, consciousness of our infirmities drives us out of ourselves to him in whom our strength lies. So he says, are you mindful of your weakness? Good, it's about time. Because it's always been there. It's, it's now it's exposed and you see it. Yes, you are weak. But guess what? He's strong. So lean on him. And actually, as you see your weakness and then you surrender that to Christ, that's actually when you become useful in God's upside-down kingdom. He's not using the shiny, polished, perfect people because they don't exist. The shiny, polished, perfect people are putting on a show. That's not real. He's using the, the broken people who have been restored. The the sinners who have been redeemed, the weak who have been made strong. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure that is the gospel. That's Christ in us. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're the jars of clay. We're all broken, fractured, frail, and yet there's glory shining through all these cracks. And those cracks allow the glory to shine through. The Peter that we see here in Luke 22, he he wasn't ready to be the Peter that we see in the book of Acts. The Peter who is is leading the church into these new waters. The the Peter who's boldly proclaiming the gospel with no fear for what may come. Before he could be that man, he needed to be broken. Before he was fit for service, before he was fit to be used by God, he needed to be brought low. That's what God does. We see that all over the Bible, and if we're honest, we see it all over our lives. So are you feeling broken, as we conclude? 
Are you feeling today like you are the worst version of you? One look from Jesus will break you down so as to build you up stronger than ever. But can I tell you something? You will miss that look if you're looking in the wrong place. I like uh, one old pastor cautioned. Don't ever forget that the look of Jesus, however wonderful, would have been no good if at that moment Simon had not been looking his way. In our weakness, oftentimes we just wallow and we spend our time staring at the floor. Or we linger and we just we fixate on our failure. Or we, we're navel-gazing and we're just, we're just become self-consumed and self-obsessed, just thinking about what a loser I am. And if Peter had just lived that way, if he didn't lift up his eyes, he would never have seen this restoring look from Jesus. Look to Jesus today, if that's you. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. And the enemy would have you look anywhere but there. So as an act of faith, if all you can muster is to lift your head, that's all you need. Lift your head this morning and look to him. Are you a Judas? And, and maybe you are. I mean, so I'm given all this comfort for the Simons, but it's, there are some Judases in the world who don't love Jesus, who don't want Jesus. It's just a show. If that's you, there's still grace even for the Judases of the world. If you repent and you believe, if you look to Jesus, you can be saved this morning. But today I, I want to speak particularly to the Simons in the room. Are you weak? Are you frail? Do you feel like you've been disqualified from service? Do you feel like your, your, your life now is simply just to try to limp to the finish line without blowing it too bad? Look to Jesus and be restored. Be redeemed. Bring him your failures and your weaknesses. He's not done with you yet. Bring him the, the loaves and the fish, even though it doesn't feel like it's much of anything, even though the, the task is too great and what you have is too small. Offer yourself to him, even though you're nothing but a fragile jar of clay. Watch what he does. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the promises that you've attached to your word that comfort me because I often feel weak and fragile or I look at sermons on a page and I just feel so inadequate and yet you've given this promise that your word goes forth and it never returns void. You've said that the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God endures forever. And so God, I just pray in faith in Jesus' name that you would take the truth from your word and that it would shine through the, this jar of clay that is my sermon and that you would work powerfully in the lives of your people. I pray that by your spirit, you would right now be preaching a sermon that's unlike anything that came out of my mouth that would just be changing and equipping and, and encouraging and, and perhaps even drawing back people to you. God, I pray that you would help us to resemble Christ as we work with one another. God, that we would discern between wickedness and weakness. God, that we wouldn't be so quick to tear people down Lord, as we think of the example of the Pharisees, Lord, they, they played a game where they just tore each other down and tried to put on a show. And Lord, we can very quickly become Pharisees. I, I see it in myself. Pharisees towards one another and Pharisees towards ourselves. We can lose sight of grace. And when we've lost sight of grace, we have nothing. Jesus, you said you're the vine, we're the branches. Apart from you, we can do nothing. 
So I pray that today we as a people collectively, Lord, and each one of us individually would lift our eyes and behold Christ. I pray that you would give us the eyes of faith that we might just see that glance back, that glance that breaks so as to restore. I pray that you would equip us for service. Lord, I have no idea with the men and women sitting in this room, I have no idea the plans and purposes you have for them. The ministry that you have in store for them. The, the lives that they're going to touch. Um, the disciples they're going to make. The glory that's going to shine through them. I have no idea. And I suspect that if I did, I never would be willing to stand up before this group because what an enormous task it is to equip a people who have been called to such a great eternal purpose God, I pray that you would help us to take very seriously the fact that you have invited us, in spite of our frailty, in spite of our weakness, to be your ambassadors in this world, to herald the greatest news in the universe, to call dead men and women to come out of their tombs and live. So God, I pray that we'd be found faithful. I pray that we would be dependent. I pray that we would earnestly become a people of prayer. Lord, I'm reminded that Peter was was sleeping in the garden before this scene. But after this scene, Peter is a man who is, who is devoted in prayer because he understands where his help comes from. Lord, let us be a church that understands where our help comes from, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?